They, they put a flattering picture. I had a little sparkle in my tooth. It's nice. <laughs> this is Van Collar. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I'm joined by a returning guest, the original dream guest of the podcast, all the way back from episode 56, back in November 2019 in the before times. That episode actually garnered some nice mentions in the Vancouver Sun, by the way. He is British Columbia's yoga dad. First elected as the BCNDP MLA of Vancouver Point Grey in 2013 by defeating then-Premier Christy Clark, he is currently the Attorney General of British Columbia and the BC Minister responsible for housing. Catch his weekly podcast, The Dash with David Eby, which I've appeared on and actually... I took his podcast to number one on the Apple podcast charts, which is part of the reason why he's back to repay me the favor on short notice, no less. He is the man. He is one of my favorites, and I'm not afraid to say it. The Honorable David E.B. David. How are you, sir? I'm great, Mo. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> I'm so happy to see you again, in person, no less. Yeah, it's a beautiful day, and uh, we're inside in, it feels like an air-conditioned space. It's, it's a lot cooler inside than it is outside for yeah sure. but the content is hot <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be served hot i'll tell you that <laughs> you know when i started this journey i would have never guessed that one day i would be yelling at the bc attorney general on his own podcast telling him to stay in his lane and to stop eating my lunch figuratively speaking of course i uh, i think a lot of people have that dream of yelling at the attorney general and a lot of people realize it mo and i'm glad that you could too it felt good you know it felt good it <laughs> my point is you're here i am i am you're here again yep. and you can yell at me if you'd like i don't take it personally yeah okay i'll, I'll work myself up to it i actually need to get something off my chest Andy Ann, the director of the city program at Simon Fraser University, there seems to be some confusion about your views on Andy Ann's 2015 study that found that people with non-anglicized Chinese first names, presumably foreign buyers, were responsible for 66% of housing purchases in three expensive West Side Vancouver neighborhoods over six months. You kind of threw Andy and his work under the bus in your testimony at the Cullen Commission, the Commission of Inquiry into Money Laundering in British Columbia. You apologized for your participation in that study. But then in an email to Post Media, you kind of backtracked. You praised Andy Ann and you said that you could have done a better job mitigating risk to scapegoat British Columbians of Chinese descent. Can you just explain to me your definitive view about this study and its role in explaining Vancouver's housing market in that red hot 2015 to 2016 period. Yeah, thanks, Mo. I so this is obviously a really um, uh, a challenging one. So this happened six years ago now, um, and uh, came back up at the Cullen Inquiry, which is looking into money laundering and the real estate market. Um, can I just start by giving a little bit of context about where? things were at when this happened. So mm -hmm. in, in May of 2015, 
um, I was trying really hard as the housing critic for the NDP to figure out what was happening in the housing market, and especially in my neighborhood, Vancouver Point Grey, UBC area, mm-hmm. uh, parts of West Vancouver and Richmond. Um, and uh, But then it was really spreading too. I mean, Tawasin's real estate market went up 100% uh, at that time. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was asking, begging uh, the housing minister at the time, Rich Coleman, look, will you have a look at, uh, a lot of people are saying, that this is international money coming into the housing market. Will you look at the data? Will you collect the data and tell British Columbians whether or not there's anything to this concern? Because I'm concerned that if you don't, it'll feed racism and people will jump to conclusions that aren't accurate. And, um, and you know, Coleman heard the question. It's on the record. You can go read it. Uh, and he said no uh, four different times. Uh, and then uh, later on, uh, he said that, you know, they didn't need to collect the data because uh, they were getting information from developers and that was sufficient for them to know that wasn't a problem. It, it was it, the demands for data got so crazy that in July of 2015, there was a rally. Evelyn Shaw, who uh, you may know, she had the uh, don't have a million hashtag. Uh, she held a rally saying, give us the data. <laughs> so that's where we were at at that point. So I was working with a number of academics um, trying to figure out what was happening in the housing market. One of them was Andy Yen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Andy had this idea that based on the sociological data around how people anglicize their names after uh, arriving, mm-hmm. uh, that you could get a sense of how much money was coming into the market uh, from outside Canada by looking at uh, non-anglicized Chinese names. Right. Which and was a fair methodology. Like other disciplines use that totally. methodology. And so, uh, but he needed the titles of recent transactions. So I got him the titles for that. Mm-hmm. We were all grasping at straws, trying to figure out how we could figure out what was happening in the housing market. Mm-hmm. And so after doing that, um, you know, first of all, there, there were two people participating in the study. There's me as a politician. Uh, and then there was Andy Ann as a researcher. Mm-hmm. And I see the roles as different. Um, as a politician, um, I think when I participate in research in that way, I bring a different um, value to it and I bring a different perception of what it means. For a researcher like Andy, he has to be fearless in his research. He has to be willing to use any tool. He has to be willing to look at difficult questions and tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And so for my part, I underestimated um, the impact that my participation would have and how people saw that and especially um, what it meant to people who had either anglicized their names or who had had anglicized names and gone back to a Chinese name, for Mm -hmm. example, made that really intense personal decision. So I had a couple of people talk to me about that and I, it really um, made me uh, recognize, first of all, my privilege of being in a, uh, you know, having a name that really uh, is a Western name and didn't stand out. Uh, and sure. the challenge that a lot of people, uh, especially of Chinese descent or other um, uh, ethnic origins w- with names that aren't Western names, how they might have felt growing up, how difficult the decision might be to anglicize or not anglicize your name, totally unrelated to the housing data and and totally unrelated to the validity of the methodology. But I just felt like I could have done a better job of understanding that, of preparing uh, around uh, the media that I supported uh, Andy in terms of getting that study and that information out. And and just for the record, the frustration that I have about the dialogue about it is that, um, you know, there's a there's a push from the liberals to say that that was wrong, that it was in, Andy's conclusions were incorrect. And of course, it was their own data that when they finally did collect it, that said that 13.2% of the housing market was international money. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was worth over a billion dollars in a single month. And so that that's the frustration that I have. And then they came out and said, yes, I mean, the, and the... Per, 
predominant amount of money is coming from China. And this was the liberals saying this. And so then to say that this study um, was the source of, uh, of anti-Asian racism and on and on is an overswing in my opinion. But that doesn't mean that I don't um, constantly try to look at how I operate in the world and do better. And this is one where I think I could have done better. And, and I said so publicly, and I, I think that's true. Right. And you talked about... I guess mitigating or or influencing how the media would would look at this, right? And and when we talk about those media narratives, one media narrative that was spun out of your Colin Commission testimony is that you were expressing regret about the whole study and it was almost it almost seemed to undercut or or demean Andy and and the study itself and like you see the irony in like tackling anti-Asian racism by throwing an Asian man under the bus. Oh, right? totally. And that was not my intention. I, I only ever meant to speak for myself. And and I tried to clarify that with the, with, uh, the Doug Todd media uh, interview request to say, look, this isn't about Andy. Like, Andy's a courageous researcher. He's done amazing work. Um, and this is just about uh, me as a politician participating in that academic research and what that meant to people to hear their local representative uh, um be involved in that and, and not have nuance about what that could mean for them. And so, yeah, I think I could have done better, but I, but I think Andy's study was necessary, timely, and turns out accurate. Uh, and, uh, and it's the work that he needs to do. So this is the kind of message that doesn't transmit well in mm -hmm. short form media, especially in newspapers. Um, and, uh, or frankly, <laughs> under, under oath at a commission, uh, <laughs> when you're not expecting the question, but, um, but you know, this is uh, politics and you take the good with the bad. What did Andy Yan's study have to do with money laundering in the first place though? Because his study was about potentially foreign buyers, right? Yeah, to, to the best of my knowledge, nothing. So then why was it brought up in the Cullen Commission? Yeah, and, and awkwardly um, brought up by the BC Civil Liberties Association that I used to uh, be the executive <laughs> director of. Uh, so, I mean, uh, fiercely nonpartisan. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, you'd have to ask them about the key message. But I think, I think if, if I were to speculate about the theory of the case, it's that there is a risk when you're talking about um, problematic money in our housing market of focusing on particular groups and thereby missing uh, the forest for the trees. Like we just need to improve our anti-money laundering controls and it doesn't matter if the money comes from the United States or Mexico, China, wherever, mm -hmm. uh, or Canada, um, that uh, with better anti-money laundering controls, uh, we can ensure that our housing market isn't used in that way. Sure, but foreign buyers is still an issue on its own and one that can be debated, right? In terms of can foreign buyers purchase real estate the same way as people who are citizens or permanent residents here, right? Yeah, and the short answer is not anymore. Yeah. Um, and uh, and thanks, frankly, to a lot of work that was done by uh, a lot of academics, including Andy Yan, mm -hmm. um, and uh, who should take a victory lap on that. I think that was important work. Do you believe that foreign buyers greatly impacted the Vancouver housing market, particularly in that time, 2015, 2016? Yeah, it's not really about what I believe that I believe I read the facts uh, that were when the government finally collected the data, and it was obvious that they were. And that's why the then BC Liberal government called us in for an emergency summer session <laughs> to pass the foreign buyer tax and give Vancouver the authority to do the empty homes tax when they realized that um, that they were way off base in terms of the influence of international money in our housing market. But I I don't believe uh, that that is the major factor driving our housing market right now. Mm -hmm. And um, and so. Um, it is possible that at different times, uh, different things are driving the market. 
And I'm sorry I have to say that out loud, but <laughs> but people like are so black and white about this stuff and they want to reduce everything to a soundbite and and to one particular instant in time. And and it's important to update your information about what's happening. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it also says that at any time, Vancouver's housing market is extremely complicated and perhaps the drivers of growth in one period are different than the drivers of growth in another period. It is but incredibly there's, complicated. <laughs> there's absolutely. a lot going on in both periods. Yeah, right? absolutely right. You've kind of touched on this idea already, but I, I want to address it head on. Your BC Liberal counterparts, Teresa Watt, Kevin Falcon, sort of, Michael Lee, they are now accusing you of having fanned the flames of anti-Asian racism in BC. Are they right? Like you, you have sort of expressed some remorse about, again, your participation in, in the study and, and how you went about it. Did you actually fan these flames of anti-Asian racism? Yeah, I mean, obviously this is an, an insane uh partisan political theory that uh, something that I did six years ago uh, is resulting uh, only now uh, in a sudden spike in anti-Asian racism. So, um, you know, it's a it's a bizarre uh, political theory with little grounding in truth. And um, that doesn't make it less annoying or frustrating, um, but I don't blame them for it. Uh, this is politics. And at the end of the day, they don't, don't want to blame them for calling you racist, basically. No, I don't, because, <laughs> you know, I, I think they're wrong and I think it's an abhorrent kind of political tactic, but I don't blame them because they don't want to talk about this. They don't want to talk about that period in time when housing prices uh, doubled in many parts of the province, mm-hmm. when they were asleep at the switch, when they didn't take steps. And if you can paint anyone who talks about that time as a racist, then you can shut down the conversation as something that's been used um effectively and was used effectively until it didn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we just need to recognize what they're trying to do and why they're trying to do it and uh, and understand that it's politics. And I think most people do. And obviously, we all recognize that there is systemic racism, there's outward racism, there's a rise in anti-Asian racism. But do you feel that there's also at the same time this like very cynical weaponization of racism to shut down conversation as you're sort of alluding to like do you think that's also a growing trend yeah i think i think it's really um it's really challenging turf um and especially when you're talking about uh say china and the uh the government of China, uh, their actions uh, in relation to the international scene. Um, and uh, I don't pretend that it's easy to do these things because it, on one hand, um, it's important to talk about these international issues, especially at the federal level. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, um, there's a huge number of uh, Asian Canadians uh, in British Columbia who face racism that comes from that kind of activity too. Like these things can both mm-hmm. be true. It can uh, be true that um, people of Asian descent in British Columbia face increased racism because of concerns that are raised about the government of China. And um, and so we need to be alive to that possibility. We need to educate people about anti-racism. We need to identify and fight racism when we see it. Uh, and we also need to try whenever we can to say things that are true, in my opinion, sure. uh, even if they're uncomfortable. I want to go back to the Cullen Commission for just a second. And I want to ask you something that I asked Sam Cooper a couple of weeks ago. Where is the former director of anti-money laundering investigations at the BC Lottery Corporation, Ross Alderson? Sam said that he wanted to testify at the Cullen Commission. Sam also said that the Cullen Commission wanted to hear from him, but he's missing. 
Do you have any insights in terms of where he is? No, I, I don't. Um, the way that the commission operates is independent from government. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know what contact they've had or not had with him. I do know that they put publicly on the record that they did want to speak to him. Um, and uh, I don't know whether they've managed to do that since they put that request out. Fair enough. And and, so. and, and I don't know where he is. <laughs> I, I don't know the man. Uh, I wouldn't recognize him. Uh, I don't know where he lives. Fair enough. And I, and I guess I'm just trying to tread lightly on how I ask this next question. Because yeah, and I, I, and because I have to tread s- lightly, too, around because the, you're gonna the say inquiry, that I, right? I don't know. Then, uh. Well, I mean, also, <laughs> the, the inquiry is still working. And as attorney general, you know, it, I have to be careful about. Um, I, I'm just wondering if this person is missing and the commission wants to hear from him. Is there a missing persons report? Are the RCMP looking for him? How does this work? Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. So I don't know how missing Mr. Alderson is. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no way for me to know how missing he is, um, and I don't know whether he's been in touch with the commission or not. So, if you're called up, just I mean, if, putting if, putting Mr. Alderson aside, yeah. if you're called up to speak at the commission, you have to go, right? Yeah, it's a, it's like a court. Mm-hmm. So if you get a summons to attend, you need to show up and it's enforceable in court as contempt if you don't go. So and Exactly. So then if you don't go, aren't RCMP or someone else looking for there you? There could theoretically be an arrest warrant through a contempt process. Is a, They can com- compel attendance at a public inquiry in that way. The commission could if they chose to do that. Right. But this is not being done in Mr. Alderson's case. And and. And I don't know uh, whether, you know, whether they had considered that or whether they talked to him or whether, you know, again, because it's all independent. Yeah, fair enough. In the Cullen Commission itself, what did you make of the testimony from former Premier Christy Clark and Rich Coleman? Yeah, it's it's really hard for me to talk about um, the inquiry without being seen to be trying to influence it from the outside. You can't in, comment on their my testimony? position. I can't wait to, but I, I think I will wait to until the commission issues its issues its final report. Um, I think that one of the key values of having this commission do its work independently is um, I, I think in the early days, maybe there was some feeling that, um, you know, this discussion about what was happening in the casinos or the real estate market or otherwise was partisan driven. And so mm-hmm. having an independent body look at this and make their own conclusions and trying to give them as much space as possible to do that without interference or perceived in- interference from me is really important to me that that they're able to do that work. I'm sure you're going to give me the exact same answer from what I'm about to say, but I'm sure that perhaps you or maybe others would have loved to see the optics of like a non-pandemic commission of some of these people being called up to the stand and testifying and just how that looks. And I have to say, Christy Clark, whatever said and done, she is a very smooth operator in terms of she was clearly in her living room and it looked like a lively place and she was just there for a little chat that we were all used to now in, in the pandemic. But Rich Coleman, on the other hand, it looked like he was in some dank cell with fluorescent lights like the optics look really strange you could tell he didn't understand the perhaps power of uh, what you can control once you're in a in a zoom room (laughs) well i'll speak generally about the the best i know of both of these people and and really i only know their political selves Uh, christy clark has always been and i'll i'll say this and i'll sound like uh 
kind of an admiring tone. She was a master of setting a scene of sort of a visual um, type of politics with, um, you know, with uh, the pink hard hat or the, you know, the words on the sign on the platform in front of her, the, the, places where a picture was taken, the places where a picture wasn't taken, mm. um, the extra resources going into the visual part of politics, understanding that people don't sit down and read really long articles, but they might glance at a picture and they get an impression. Like she was very, very good at that. And mm -hmm. she was a very talented politician. Rich Coleman, it never struck me as a very talented politician. <laughs> One time I said to Rich Coleman, I said, you know, oh, election coming. He's like, elections are my favorite time. You know, I go out and I put up the signs and like, I mean, he was in a seat that was never um, under any threat while he was the, mm -hmm. the candidate. And so he didn't have to fight for his seat. He didn't have an intense political battle. And he had a, a sense about him of uh, sort of entitlement and authority um, you know, I deserve to be here. You do not deserve to question me, mm. um, kind of vibe that he would give off, uh, in estimates or question period or in the hallway. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so they were very different politicians and they came from very different places. I felt like, you know, Christy had run many races that were closer that she was supposed to lose or whatever. And that Rich Coleman had never done that. And I think you can see that. And there's different politicians like that in the legislature, some that, mm -hmm. that have to be good at politics and some that just don't cause they're in a good seat. And in fairness, they both had their degree of success and longevity in politics. They sure did. Yeah. <laughs> Despite yeah, sure their did. divergent approaches, right? In multiple lives. I wouldn't count Christy Clark out yet. <laughs> you think she'll come back in some capacity? I always thought she'd go federal, you know? Yeah. I, I'm surprised that she hasn't shown up. Federal honestly. liberals or federal conservatives? Well, she was always a federal liberal from the best of my understanding, but then, um, but I, I don't think she was ever like, I mean, she never struck me as really ideal, ideological person. So easily she could run for either party easily <laughs> yeah yeah there goes the tone of admiration <laughs> <laughs> i mean you and her butted heads for many years right yeah yeah it feels uh honestly it feels uh, she's a civilian now she's just a human in the world and i hope that when i'm done politics people don't go on podcasts and trash talk me for extended periods so <laughs> so it feels a little bit unfair like you know go enjoy your life christy like have fun see you later yeah how do you look back at that rivalry? Like, is it something that now that you're not butting heads with her on a regular basis, you kind of go, oh, that was a worthy opponent or whatever? Or is there still a animosity, I don't know, beef that, that you would hold, a grudge? Yeah, no, not at all. Um, yeah, it's more... Um yeah, it's more like uh, like an old job you had kind of vibe. You know, like, oh, yeah, that manager was kind of a drag. Um feeling about it <laughs> like uh you've got some distance and doing something else and and uh and you know i i i don't have any <laughs> beef with her i mean like <laughs> there's so uh so much emotional energy into politics like to carry those kinds of feelings for extended periods mm -hmm. would just um be a recipe for burnout sure you gotta just like move forward like uh man that was like four years ago how did that happen <laughs> Let's talk about another BC liberal stalwart so you can bring out the hammer this time. Mm. This is someone that you might be butting heads with. We have to talk about your friend, Kevin Falcon. Mm -hmm. He's my guy. <laughs> so after my appearance on your podcast, The Dash with David Eby, media started to notice that you had a regular segment called The Falcon Report, and you were targeting Kevin Falcon as the presumed BC Arguing. liberal. I was profiling. <laughs> Why would you... <laughs> I'm profiling him. I think he's great. 
it sounded like you thought that he was going to win. I think you said he's your guy. He you is. Said that. He is. I think Mr. Wilkinson's uh, lack of success was just a <laughs> fluke. And I think they need to double down with Wilkinson 2.0. And you were doing this before Falcon even declared his candidacy. Yeah, I took some heat from some uh, some liberal commentators who said, hey, this is just a guy in the world. It's like, give me a break. Yeah. And that was after my appearance. Yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. You shot it, shot it, shot us to number one. I did, uh, by the way. And I I fully credit you with that. Um, So it's not like you're just, it ain't bragging if it's true, Mo, you know? Um, But yeah, I I think, um, you know, I obviously have an interest in a continuing NDP majority government. um, And I think, when I look at the field, I think Mr. Falcon is uh, is a very good uh, contrast for our approach to politics. And this is kind of where the cynic in me comes in. Do you want him to win because you think he's beatable or you actually think he would be a solid party leader? Because well, you made that Andrew Wilkinson joke just now, yeah. but now you're saying like, he's, well, I think he, he represents contrast. the core of the liberal party. I think he uh, represents the ideology accurately. I think he's honest about it. Like his first policy announcement is I'm going to get rid of the speculation tax. Um, and, uh, and I appreciate that honesty. I appreciate that ideology um, to say like, this is what I stand for. Um, this is what I believe in. I uh, think that the NDP are communists and I think that uh, the free market is going to solve all the problems and, and like, great. Like, let's have a debate about that. When you have an opponent that is like, oh, I think I read a poll recently that said that I should say this. It's such a bummer, you know? Mm. It's just like, you can't nail them down. They're like jelly. They say whatever they need to say. And um, and people don't buy it. Like, they, it's not a successful kind of politics. Um, and it's not fun. And it's not enlightening. And it doesn't get us any closer to a better province. It just kind of... It follows um, rather than says, you know, we need to do these things and they're difficult and mm. and uh, and people might not like uh, this immediate reform, but it's got to happen and we're going to do it. And and to his credit, I think that that is his strength is he'll say difficult things that he believes to be true. I just happen to disagree with him about what is what the best policy is. And I, I think the premier does, too. And I think uh all of our party does, and, and it's nice that way that there's a clear contrast for voters. Do you think the BC Liberal leadership race is a coronation ceremony for him? Yeah, I. So okay, here's here's my big problem, Mo. I um, am very bad at calling these things. So, you know, I look at <laughs> we can take that later. Yeah, I look at Kevin Falcon. <laughs> I've got this outsider perspective. First of all, I don't know the average BC Liberal member in 2021. Uh, what their ideology is, what they're looking for. Um, and uh, I, I don't know what, um, and, and they've got this crazy voting system where um, it's kind of like a ranked ballot, but there's also a sort of constituency level thing where you have to have all your delegates from across the provinces, something Christy Clark did really well. Mm-hmm. So Christy Clark was supposed to get crushed in the, in the leadership and she just walked away with it. Mm-hmm. And um, I probably, I don't recall what my thoughts were, but I probably would have said she wasn't going to win. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I, I feel pretty far away from it. And maybe you like might be in a better position to, you know, you're talking to people from both sides and what do you, what do you, what's your call? Do I think it's a coronation? Yeah. Do you think it's a coronation? Yeah. I, I don't see anyone with that kind of name recognition or that sort of political authority like he has, mm-hmm. but maybe people aren't looking for that and someone will break out. I wouldn't be surprised. What was that thing about the opportunity cost that he said? 
Well, it's, it's, it, it was, he was talking about how, um, you know, he was making so much money in the private market and, and, you know, he, he knew that the government had to change, but he didn't want to do it. And because, you know, if he went into government, he'd have to give up all this money. And, uh, mm. and, you know, finally, you know, Gordon Campbell said to him, look, you know, he, he said to Gordon Campbell, look, what, you know, I'll only do it if you let me like, and I'm paraphrasing, you can sue me for defamation. Uh, but, but, but the bottom line was he wanted to do some really radical reforms and cuts to public service. Right. And he said, I'll only, I'll only do this job if you let me do these things. If you're not going to get all soft at the last minute and back <laughs> off. And Campbell told him, no, we're not going to like I commit to you that we're going to do these things. And, and, uh, and so he signed up. And um, so I've, I've, I've not heard someone, at least openly uh, in politics before, say that, you know, they were making so much money and like, they were, they were so rich and like they, that's why they didn't want to go into politics like I've just never heard anyone openly say that before so it was kind of an interesting uh, glimpse yeah interesting well it's a long race right and as I said on your podcast I think the one guy who's going to make it really interesting is Aaron Gunn kind of just from a sensational point of view and I, I do believe Aaron Gunn it will run but he'll probably be the last to announce I am also intrigued by Val Litwin's launch and his campaign. It seems like he's serious. They certainly did a lot of work in terms of their presentation of the launch. Everyone else, I'm not so sure. I, I do wonder how much of it is ingratiating yourself to who you think will be the future leader, running a strong campaign. Oh, that was hard fought, you know, <laughs> pulling some punches maybe. And hoping that your guy wins and, and you land a sweet cabinet position. You're talking about Michael Lee. I'm not talking about anyone specifically. <laughs> I'm teasing you. But we I, know. I mean, listen, I mean, I, I don't know if you know this. I was approached to run in the in the last election. And one of the things that I was told from your party was, well, you know, people don't run necessarily to win. They run to raise profile or they run for an issue or, you know, they have, they have different motivations to run for office. And so I, I don't think that would be different in terms of running for party leadership. I'm sure there's I think that's right. a plethora of, that's right. of motivations or ambitions that that some of these candidates have. On the topic of Michael Lee, you know, I that's one guy I don't get at all. I mean, he must be raising profile because he's been the invisible man since the PR referendum. I I, I mean, obviously you <laughs> you're you, you're seeing him in question period, but when he was, and I guess maybe still is, the the critic to the attorney general. How many times did he ask you a question? Yeah, it's a short list. Uh, he didn't get a lot of question period time, and uh, and you know he 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 ran pretty hard against the reforms to ICBC um, with the backing of uh, of some trialers. But I, you know, it didn't have any populist breakthrough, and he didn't. I, I don't know. He he's a nice guy. Um, I think he means well. Um, he is so boring. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know how he's going to get attention. Uh, Aaron Gunn, I always forget about Aaron Gunn, and he is totally the dark horse, isn't he? Yeah. Um, like, I don't know if he can convert those likes into uh, into liberal memberships and then into votes. That's a couple significant steps. But if he can, and if they let him run, because uh, there was always sort of that um, uh, oh, whether speculation about that. or red lid. Yeah, yeah, about whether he would sort of bring the reputation of the party into disrepute. <laughs> I laugh as I say it. Um, so I, yeah, I don't know. Um, he's he's interesting, isn't he? Uh, and also a totally different model of organizing. Well, the crazy thing about Aaron Gunn is, so he's not running right now officially, but just based on the work he does 
in terms of social media and putting out these videos and these interviews that he does, he's getting more eyeballs on his content than anyone else who's running for the BC Liberal leadership. And he's not even in the race, right? So he's raising his profile in a much different way. And, you know, people say, oh, he has American viewers or viewers across Canada. He's pretty confident that half of his viewership is from BC. And certainly Facebook especially can provide those metrics. So I do think he it's a fascinating experiment. And I actually think that just in my interactions with him, I don't think he'll be able to resist the temptation of trying to shake things up. I think that's a guy that's motivated by let's just see what happens. Let's cause some, let's cause some chaos. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Have we ever seen that in Canada? Someone uh, sort of convert that high profile social media existence into elected office. I don't think so. Not organically. I mean, I think, I think Maxime Bernier was trying to do that with the people's party of Canada, but it's not like he was this established social media star yeah. who then came into politics. He was trying to go that social media route, but I don't think it, it was very successful for him. It's a challenging thing to do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No kidding. No kidding. I, I want to stick to Michael Lee for just a second here. Lawyers throughout British Columbia have been very vocal in advocating against the changes that you made to ICBC. Do you feel like you're up against Vancouver's lawyers that have this lobbying power and influence? And and Michael Lee almost seems to be appealing to them directly in terms of some of the attacks that, that he's made against you. Do you think that's an element there in his candidacy? Yeah. So when you're running for a leader, you have to kind of identify these demographics are going to be motivated enough to take a membership and then to vote. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and there's no question, there's a lot of lawyers who do personal injury work related to car crashes and their staff and their families that if they thought that Michael Lee would undo these changes and, um, and, and bring back the good old days, um, would, would probably take out a membership and support him. So, um, he's not foolish that way where he is a bit um, short-sighted perhaps, uh, is that everyone's got their rebate checks now. Everyone's got their new reduced rates and he's got to be the guy to go out and tell them that he's actually going to undo that. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and that makes it hard. Uh, so it, it works okay in a leadership and then it transitions very poorly into real life. I thought ICBC was a failure and you made us pay so much more for ICBC. I did get a, a discount on my premium this year. It went down. But I yes. thought that was just because you and I were friends. I thought you did me a solid or something. <laughs> That's right. I wasn't sure. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. That uh, that really elaborate uh, system uh, where, <laughs> where ICBC does rates based on who uh, who I talk to. Um, yeah. So it's uh, it's really exciting what's happening with this public corporation that we all own. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are now delivering some of the lowest rates in the country some of the best benefits in the country and they're making money and they're sending money back to British Columbians. And yeah, when we, when our government took over, uh, they were losing a billion dollars a year. Mm-hmm. And this is like the difference between, um, remember when I was saying the thing about Kevin Falcon is he is at least willing to, to say difficult things and, and threaten to do difficult things because mm-hmm. he thinks they're the right thing to do. Um, this is a, an example, you know, we're, like that was hard for those lawyers and will be hard for those lawyers and those people who work in those firms that were dependent on the system as it stood. And yet something had to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, these are hard decisions in politics. Your dad was a personal injury lawyer, right? He was, yeah. Is there any irony in that? A lot. 
<laughs> yeah, a lot. A lot. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I, uh, it's hard for me to separate the changes that the then NDP government in Ontario, the Bob Ray government made around car insurance that really cut into his business when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, and, and here I am grown up doing that in BC, doing a better job of it, frankly, than the NDP in the 90s in Ontario did um, because they only went halfway and they managed to cause all the damage but still have the highest rates in the, mm. in the country, which is a bummer. But, um, but uh, yeah, like it... I, I couldn't talk to those lawyers without thinking about, you know, their families, the people who work for them, you know, the, these are real businesses and there's a real impact and they're going to have to shift their businesses. And mm-hmm. in politics, you have to, I believe that to be an ethical politician, you have to recognize and face the negative consequences of necessary decisions, mm-hmm. which means meeting with them and being honest and telling them what you're planning on doing and how you intend to do it. Um, and, uh, and to show that respect, because I do, I respected my dad's work. It paid for our families. Um, groceries and mortgage and all these things. And um, and I respected their work and then something had to change. I don't want to get too in the weeds with ICBC, but I do want to talk about it in this political sense. I'm not sure if you read the post-mortem report from the BC Liberals that went over their election and what worked, what didn't work. I mean, it was a lot of what didn't work. I didn't read it. (laughs) (laughs) What was interesting was they they outlined all these different issues, right, in terms of what resonated with their voter base. Mm -hmm. And the ICBC was number one. Oh, for sure. And (laughs) ending the monopoly, the ICBC was number one. For sure. Aaron Gunn, his top viewed video, which I think has like two million views just on its own, is about ICBC and privatizing ICBC. So this still is like a big issue in the province. And I know you're saying that obviously, you know, we, we, we look at our premiums and, you know, maybe we'll be happy about that, but there's still like a formidable, intense population that, that wants to do, do away with it. Right. Yeah. Those timelines are really important, Mo. So I was, you know, (laughs) it, uh, the, the collapse of the minority parliament and the timing of the election meant that the ICBC reforms were not in place. Uh, the rebates from COVID hadn't been delivered. And um, I knew uh, that uh, this issue had traction because I read the emails that people send me. I read letters that people send me. And, uh, and I would go to meetings and people would say, listen, my granddaughter, she's got this 19... 97 Toyota Camry and uh, it's not worth anything and she just needs to drive to school into her job and she can't there's no bus where we are and your insurance is making her pay $3,000 a year (laughs) and you increased it and you did this and I'm like oh boy yeah you know what this is all actually true Mm -hmm. Uh, but if you just wait you know, a few more months, <laughs> these reforms are going to kick in in May and you're going to really like the new system. That is a really hard sell. Yeah. And I am not surprised that the Liberals thought that was their number one issue in the election. But I would really be surprised if um, they thought that running on ICBC in the next election uh, would be a successful strategy for them. Because you don't think it's going to be an issue by the next time? No, know, no. 2024. I, th- I think the rates are going to consistently be um, afford- more affordable and mm-hmm. especially compared with other other jurisdictions in the country. And uh, I think we've turned it around. So, um, you know, we'll see. But uh, but um, I don't think that will be a live issue mm-hmm. in the next election. Let's go back I to, sure hope not. let's go back to Kevin Falcon for a second. He, in his launch, really hammered the BCNDP government on housing prices 
And he was saying that your government has not built enough housing, like social or public housing, has not enabled housing to be built. You're the BC minister responsible for housing. So why aren't you building enough supply, Mr. Eby? <laughs> yeah, great, great question, Mo. So here's here's the thing. Um, he, uh, in terms of his own personal arc, like in government, setting up the structural uh, uh, requirements for uh, where we ended up with the out-of-control housing market from 15 to 17, uh, then going out, working for a developer, the capital arm of a major developer in British Columbia, profiting handsomely, uh, and then coming back into politics and saying the reason for the housing crisis is the uh is the existing government is like that is amazing <laughs> that is like that is a that is a real like that is a, a very impressive uh, demonstration of uh, of something and and so you know I uh, mark this day Mo um, I agree with Kevin Falcon wow. uh, that we need to be building a lot more housing especially in Vancouver um, and uh, in the Lower Mainland there's a huge amount of demand and with population growth in uh, Metro Vancouver, everything from immigration, uh, big tech firms coming, the Amazon jobs, uh, uh, you know, big companies in Vancouver, big hiring plans in the next uh, 36 months uh, to, to sort of five-year horizon. And I am really worried about what's coming if we don't respond with uh, the housing that we need. And so... Um, I've been engaged in a lot of conversations with municipalities. Our government has required them to do housing needs studies about the kind of housing they need mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and so that we can uh, get that through. But I'll tell you, Mo, I supported a five-story rental housing building in Kits in my home constituency. Uh, that was a two, maybe two night, uh, long, long hours, public hearing, people really upset about this. Mm -hmm. Like we need... We need a lot of rental housing. We need yeah. a ton of rental housing in in Vancouver, and we need and you know we need housing that people can afford to buy too. So across Metro Vancouver, and so um, so to some extent, we agree. Uh, where we part ways is um, he thinks that by getting rid of the speculation tax, this is the tax that taxes people if they leave homes vacant or if they're not paying taxes here in British Columbia and they buy property here. Mm -hmm. um, that by getting rid of that, that that will help solve the housing crisis. That has opened 18,000 previously vacant homes to rental housing. And so his first step is to get rid of that tax to solve the housing crisis. Like that is such a uh, developer, uh, you know, sort of self-interested mindset that uh, that is this caricature of a developer. You know, it's like this tax that I have to pay on this um, on this. Uh, uh, on this lot is the reason for the housing crisis. It's such a myopic view. And fortunately, the majority of house builders I talk to do not share that view. But to, to bring that to the being your first substantive commitment is to get rid of this tax that opened 18,000 homes to rent uh, for British Columbians in the middle of a rental crisis. Like, um, you know, you can see why he's my guy. <laughs> why aren't we building enough housing then? Like, it sounds like maybe you're peddling it off to, to municipalities for the processes or, or what's the issue? Yeah. Cause so you guys the, promised to build a lot of housing. Yeah. And we, and we are, you know, the housing starts are well in excess what we're predict predicted in liberal budgets. Uh, so it, when you issue a budget, you uh, housing starts are one of the things that you kind of look three years out and mm -hmm. five years out and, and what are they going to look like? And so the liberals projected housing starts and under them, there were way fewer than there have been under us. Um, but, um, but it's not enough. 
and we need to do more. There are a huge number of reasons uh, why we're not building the housing. One of them is, yeah, there are these really lengthy processes to get any kind of housing approved. Um, uh, municip- Vancouver has um, fallen into a crisis of just generally permit approval. If it's a laneway house, if it's a renovation, if it's a a multi-story condo if it's a rental building it doesn't matter um they uh did a tech upgrade that screwed up their permitting system they built less housing last year than they had in a long time because of it and they're sorting it out kennedy's sorting it out um but it is a really big problem and so there's a whole bunch of explanations for it but when i talk to like a mayor like lisa helps she says you know we want to build more housing but these um hearing processes that we need to go through take a huge amount of time for each building there's so many opportunities for the thing to go off the rails and we just need to get the housing built and so i i agree entirely and so that that is um housing supply is one of the major factors that that we're having a challenge with right now and it's it's really like i am i have a deep feeling of concern about the number of people who are going to be moving here to work at the amazon headquarters uh as just Mm -hmm. like one physical site just one site uh, where you're talking about thousands of people earning $150,000 plus uh, coming to Vancouver, looking for housing close to work and the displacement that's going to happen if we don't have housing for this workforce. Mm-hmm. If we're not building housing for everyone that's going to provide services to that workforce, for the baristas, for the people who work in the restaurants, for the bike repair shops, for whatever, you know, like for the people who work in those places. So is your government investing in public and social housing for those people? Yeah, we, we put $2 billion into something called the housing hub. And this is the first time, uh, you know, previously there was uh, 800 million. So it's 2.8 billion altogether. Uh, this is the first time a government's really committed to uh, building middle income housing using a social housing agency. So BC housing is always built for the homeless and for mm. people living outside and so on. Now, uh, it's providing construction loans to facilitate rental housing for workforce housing. And I wish there was a better word. I'm trying to think of a better word for it, but it's for the people who work and make the city run. They need mm-hmm. a place to live. And um, and so uh, workforce housing is the best name that I have for it right now. But providing loans to uh, reduce the cost of construction of rental housing, and which results in covenants on those rental units that they rent for lower than uh, market prices. And uh, the average family income for these places is $60,000 under the project, but it can go up to $110,000 just to facilitate to build this housing. And then once the housing is built, the money is paid back to BC housing. It can go out into another project. So it's like a catalyst. It, mm. it, um, uh, that's going to be building rental housing across the province. And, and, you know, so we're doing what we can, and we also need to pick up the pace of the approvals for those projects so we can get them done. Sure. I'm going to lobby you a softy here because I haven't got you in trouble yet. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's actually important to discuss this. And again, we, we've kind of touched on it a little bit. Kevin Falcon in particular has gone really hard on the taxes and measures on housing that your government has implemented to cool down a lot of that speculative demand. And he says that things like the spec tax and the school tax actually raise the cost of housing. Is he right? Have you, Carol James and Selena Robinson, been legislating the high costs of housing this entire time with all these taxes that you keep adding on to the value of a home? When 
we, we talked about the supply uh, challenges. When you have a fixed or limited supply of something, it does invite speculation. And if you don't put measures in place to address that, then you're going to have a problem. And we did. We had a massive run up in uh, home prices between 15 and 17. Um, and uh, and it resulted in um, some really necessary reforms, including the speculation tax. People were buying homes and leaving them empty in the middle of a housing crisis, mm-hmm. uh, 18,000 homes. And so uh, by opening those homes to renters, um, we eased a very significant part of the housing crisis. We uh, probably increased uh, some of Mr. Falcon's costs as a developer, uh, but uh, but that is the, I guarantee that is the cheapest way to create 18,000 units of housing is to say to people, look, you don't have to pay the tax if you rent out your place. And there's still um, pieces of it that, um, that you know, I'm talking with the finance minister about that mm-hmm. I think we need to address about uh, the speculation tax and, and only renting out a portion of your house and, and some things that Josh Gordon has raised, for example. But, but overall, it's been a really successful tax. And um, also, I don't think that it is, if you remove it, you'll bring back the old problems. Uh, <laughs> so I wouldn't recommend that. But I I, um, I don't think that it is the answer to our current problems that we face in the housing market right now. I want to end on on homelessness. It's a big theme that's been discussed on this podcast, of course, with your colleague, Selena Robinson, but also with Kennedy Stewart, Dan Fumano, Jordan Armstrong. Are tent cities a thing of the past now in Vancouver and Victoria? Uh, I, I sure hope so. I sure hope so for a couple of reasons. Um, one is... You know, we do have sufficient shelter capacity and inside space to, if someone's camping outside, um, that they have an option to come inside if they want to, um, which is, uh, you know, a prerequisite to enforcing park bylaw rules. Like the court has just said that this is a fact. You need the indoor space. They need to have a dignified option before you can say you can't camp in the park. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one piece. But more importantly, um, we're working on a homelessness. strategy that looks upstream and we've been very we've had to be very reactionary to homelessness like okay there's a tent city here there's a tent city there like maybe we can buy this hotel blah blah blah. bc housing's done amazing work um but we need to go upstream the kids who are becoming adults they're leaving uh the support of the government kids uh, who are currently in care mm-hmm. huge uh feeder into homelessness uh people leaving hospitals people leaving prisons you know we know that these are feeders into homelessness that um we can go upstream and we can intercept that and we can if someone does become homeless we can ensure that their homelessness is brief in duration um and uh, we can prevent people from becoming homelessness if we're strategic about it. Mm-hmm. So we have uh, the Ministry of Health, uh, uh, the Ministry of Mental Health and Addiction, my ministry, the Ministry of Housing, the Ministry for Poverty Reduction, all around the same table, all of our public servants around the same table, uh, and working on this strategy as well as um, this sort of intense group of people who are super hard to house, who are very visible outside mental health and addiction issues who need additional supports because all our ministries are providing services to them in different ways. So we have a couple different strategies, an overall strategy around preventing homelessness, a very intensive strategy for people who are not having their needs met with existing supportive housing so that we can uh, provide them with housing that they'll actually be able to stay inside and be stable and, and have a better life. And so there's some really exciting things coming. And uh, and so I hope I hope so. I, I would never say that tent cities are a thing of the past because the surest thing is when you say that the next day there will be a tent city, but I, as a politician, but I will say that we are doing everything possible to try to prevent that from 
uh, that situation in Strathcona Park, for example, from happening again, or uh, or Beacon Hill Park in Victoria. Um, and how are those two parks looking right now? The so the mayor of Victoria said that they were at um, essentially a functional zero. She described it homelessness in Victoria, uh, which means uh, that they have spaces for people to come inside. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that you never see a tent in Victoria, but all of the parks. Um, Beacon Hill Park is close to camping now, um, so all those tents that were there are now gone, um, uh, to the best of my knowledge. And uh, the C- Cecilia Ravine in, uh, in the very notorious uh, uh, camping area associated with a lot of uh, property crime, uh, sort of violent incidents. Um, people are no longer camping there. Um, Strathcona Park, uh, nobody is camping there. Uh, the Numbers we had from Oppenheimer and Pandora, Pandora Park in Victoria, 80% plus of people who were housed from those encampments are still housed. Mm-hmm. And so we're hoping to see at least that level of success from people who are housed out of these other encampments. So really positive news, really great news, and so much more work to do, especially with the pandemic and all the mm-hmm. pressures on housing right now. I'm not suggesting that you take a victory lap over this or anything like that, but like this is a big deal. And I mean, I, I've made the argument on Kennedy Stewart's behalf saying that if for the duration of his term, you don't see these encampments pop up, he probably deserves to be reelected. Like it, it's a, it's quite a massive accomplishment, right? To, to not have these encampments that we've seen for many years now, especially in Vancouver. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really good. And, and one of the things that made it possible in Victoria and Vancouver is alignment between the municipal government, the provincial government and the federal government. There was federal money, there were sites from the city, there was uh, provincial work through BC Housing, and we all worked together. And I don't want to miss the park board either, because the park board was very instrumental. Uh, Camille Demont, who's the chair of the park board, just like everybody pulling together, pushing in the same direction. There were moments of tension. I'm not going to lie, but we all, <laughs> you know, worked together, and and that's what has to happen in those sort of moments of crisis. So yeah, I'm very grateful that uh, that Kennedy did that, that Camille did that, and um, and uh, and that uh, the federal minister, Minister uh, Hussein. Uh, uh, stepped up the way that they did which sounds unlike the relationship you have with penticton yeah penticton so (laughs) whatever happened there like this was in the news for quite a while about them shutting down this shelter and you saying that you know it's probably going to result in a tent city yeah so what what happened um so uh bc housing um sent a letter to penticton council saying that um we were going to exercise something called statutory immunity uh sometimes it's called paramountcy um uh, to ignore penticton's local zoning bylaws and continue the operation of the shelter 42 people in this shelter it's a temporary shelter it's not an appropriate site it's not an appropriate Mm -hmm. building but there was no other place for those folks to go um, and uh, the city um, made the decision to close it and to um, their intent was clearly to move everybody outside, but they already have a really big homeless population in Penticton, a mm-hmm. big crisis that they're facing. That's why they have a lot of supportive housing. Um, and uh, and so that would really, in my opinion, it was going to tip things over the edge and create a tent city in Penticton. And it was literally at the same time as we were trying to get things out under control in Vancouver and Victoria. And, and uh and why you would deliberately create a crisis like that is beyond me. So um, I said no, uh, and uh, and they have not. Um, those people are still in the shelter, and so we're working with oh, the Penticton not staff. Closed. No, it's not. No, okay. uh, so we're working with Penticton staff to try to identify another site, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we'll see where it goes. 
I love it. I love to hear that. I love to hear that those people are, are being housed again. It's not yeah, the best situation, they're but they're you know? sheltered. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I um I do think that people are counting on you to to make a big impact on this file across the housing spectrum and and again preventing people from becoming chronically homeless and really helping these people that are there. And because I don't, I feel like we we tell ourselves that these these things always will exist, or you know, as opposed to maybe even trying to tackle these these big structural problems and they're not like they're big but like the homeless one is you know it feels within reach that's the thing about it Mm -hmm. it feels within reach especially those people who are most intensely mentally ill and addicted you know it feels within reach that we can do a lot better for them and we have this complex care piece that i'm working on i'm so excited about and uh, i feel that huge weight of responsibility i know there are a lot of people who are looking for better things um in our province around housing and Mm -hmm. this is a dream job for me i care so much about housing so i'm really excited about that and the work that we're doing and i think we're pointed in the right direction and we'll see where we end up be honest with me. Are you being groomed to be the next leader of the BCNDP, or are you going to make that jump to federal politics like Adrian Dix? Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks, Mo. Um, so, I mean, first of all, let me- you you have big files, and you've had big files throughout I your do. term in government. Um, let me say. Uh, if I'm being groomed, um, then unusual files to choose ICBC, you know, was an unusual choice, <laughs> um, but I appreciate it. Uh, I, I'm just so grateful for what uh, John Horgan's done with our party. You know, he has brought us into a credible, um, sort of publicly accessible kind of political party that people uh, will vote for. And he has uh, changed the reputation of BC politics with uh, getting big money out of politics and uh, and balancing a whole bunch of difficult issues, and uh, and he is showing no t- no sign of leaving anytime soon. So um, I'm I'm glad for that. I've got a young family. Um, I am hugely supportive of what he's done, and I love my job. So. Um, no, I, I'm spending 0% of energy <laughs> thinking about the horrible mess the PC liberals are in, a leadership contest, like fighting with their own party members. I am so grateful uh, that I don't have to think about that right now. And you didn't even acknowledge my little joke about Adrian Dix. Oh, no, man, because you, <laughs> you threw that hardball right up the middle and all I was thinking about was like taking that swing. So um, the, other, uh, the other piece you ask about is federal politics. I have a really hard time imagining myself being involved in federal politics i so bc um, do you speak french though like adrian dix no he's like he was showing that off right yeah he's a boss in french <laughs> he worked for the he had some kind of job uh for the french uh francophonie uh, association in british columbia and uh and he does interviews in french cbc like it's super cool it's very <laughs> impressive uh and I'm, I'm on federal calls regularly when people effortlessly effortlessly switch back and forth and uh i wish um that i could remember my grade 11 french to that degree <laughs> it would be horrific it'd be like where's the library kind of stuff sure and uh so i uh but that's not why I, it's the time zones <laughs> it's the it's the disconnect from the things that i care the most about it's so far away from the front lines municipal is too front line federal is too far away uh and uh and also like moving to ottawa is just not on the agenda for our family like sure yeah yeah it doesn't look appealing to me 
the travel. I mean, the, the travel, even in your job, we're talking about outside of COVID, of course. It's a lot. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's a it lot to be lot. away from home. It is a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. <laughs> are you uh, are you coming back with the dash, or are you taking a break with the the summer? What's what's the plan? Yeah. So the podcast is so it's been such a fun project, and it's gone super well. Um, Megan Sally, who's my um, co-host, mm-hmm. uh, she uh, is clerking. Uh, with court, which is a very like, uh, it's real coup for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, when you are clerking with a judge, you cannot be slumming around with uh, political types. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she's got to take a break. So we're going to shut it down for August. We'll put up a bunch of stuff. Um, we'll probably put this podcast up and with your permission, of course, Mo. Of course. Anytime. Uh, and, uh, you can but, take any of my episodes <laughs> and put it up. That's fine. Syndication. Um, <laughs> and uh, we're going to relaunch in September with uh, with a new co-host that we haven't announced yet. Oh. A little teaser. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, a little teaser. All right. Yeah. Well, Mr. Eby, this was a real pleasure. I uh, gave you a little tough time and, and asked you some questions that maybe you weren't allowed to answer, but uh, I still appreciate you showing up and I appreciate your candor. What is your call to action to the listener? Um, I strongly encourage people to enjoy the summer. I hope you have a wonderful summer. I can't wait to ditch these masks. I hope that we all get vaccinated and uh, have a wonderful summer. Where where post, was the, where's the partisan EB fighting in the in the QP? That's the guy that I wanted to talk to. And you, yeah, that's your message. I mean, that's your sign off. Yeah, I guess so. Like I don't know, stick it to the liberals. <laughs> it just feels like I don't know, Mo. It's just such a weird moment in BC politics. Are you tired of winning? Is that your problem? No, not at all. I just like I, you know I. Have had the opportunity to work on real issues as opposed to like work on the liberals and it's just such a delight to do and i can't it's hard to get back to being like really caring about what michael lee or kevin falcon says like it's just it, that time will come but it's not right now you got all I feel summer good about for that. that yeah i'm gonna have a chill <laughs> summer man i'm gonna have a relaxed summer doing the work uh and not worrying about what the liberals are up to absolutely well i love that and i appreciate it thanks so much thanks for having me people What a return. What a show. He is absolutely one of my favorite podcast guests, one of my favorite politicians, and just one of my favorite people. He made this happen on short notice. That is absolutely true. But boy, did he deliver. He is the Attorney General of British Columbia and the BC Minister responsible for housing. He is David Eby. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.